It's good to see all of you. I turned to Ashley right before we started, and I was happy we had a break, but I told her, like, of course they had to do Old Rugged Cross. That song is, I grew up with that song, so I got emotional. So thank you for the joke to just <laughs> clear the room. Uh, but we are we already just in a really brief amount of time appreciate the kindness and hospitality we've gotten from here, um, just coming up and, and getting to know other believers and getting to go through the word together. So thank you very much for it. Uh, so if I break, it's your fault for your graciousness because I normally don't get nervous, but we're very thankful for the time we've already had here. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can feel free to go over to Isaiah 53, which is we were, where we will eventually get to. But first, I want to take you back a little bit, about 50 years, to April 11th, 1970, where three men, Fred Hayes, Jim Lovell, and Jack Swigert, had a mission to be the third group of Americans to land on the moon. However, within 56 hours later only, that mission had drastically changed. The mission was no longer to land on the moon, but simply to stay alive. Following a number of shorts and increased pressures and temperature changes after a fan circuit was ignited, the side of the spacecraft exploded unexpectedly. After a number of maneuvers to conserve power from one part of the spacecraft to the other, the crew of Apollo 13 determined a new course of action. They had to somehow figure out how to return back to Earth despite the multiple problems that had just arisen. It would be impossible even in the next 10 minutes of time to name all of the problems that faced them, but here were a couple of them as they were stranded in space. A loss of oxygen needed for breathing and for serious operation of the ship. Determining how to use the moon's orbit to use enough power to get back to Earth. They had to create a mechanism from scratch to remove the deadly CO2 that was building up in the cabin. And by the way, the solution ended up involving duct tape, part of the flight manual, and plastic bags. They had to manually look out the window to take a visceral look at Earth to determine their trajectory. And finally, they had to deal with the dehydration and extreme cold with a longer time getting back to Earth than they had originally anticipated. However, as many of you already know, despite all of these problems, the hard work of the astronauts and the NASA team back home helping them through this crisis, they eventually did successfully land on Earth. And historically, that Apollo 13 mission is now known as a successful failure. And so the question that I would like us to consider briefly is, is it truly a successful mission? If you define success by the ability to adjust to circumstances that you didn't intend, then yes, it was a success. And if you determine the success of the mission specifically based on the conservation of human life, the three astronauts getting back to Earth then again, it was a successful mission. However, if you consider their mission a success based on how they wanted to consider it, the initial mission, getting to land on the moon, it was a failure. Despite their success, 
in survival, the mission itself was a failure. Now, the world around us now hits a similar speed bump. All of the previous plans that we had are put on hold because of this global crisis that seems to have dramatically changed all of our plans. Disaster strikes in each country needs to now adapt to a new set of problems. And what would a successful response look like? Is it getting our economy back to the way it was as quickly as possible? Is it conserving human life? Is it needing to determine which one of those is supposedly more important? How do we respond to the dramatic changes hitting our daily lives? The problem is that humanity has a hard time completing missions because so often problems impede our ability to carry out what we feel we need to do. And it's in situations like this and situations like the Apollo 13 mission that prove to humanity just how much we lack control. We can plan as best as we can, but our ability to execute what we want to do and especially what we need to do, is so often completely unattainable. True success, true success is based off of being able to perfectly accomplish, without flaw, the mission we initially carried or attempted to carry out, despite hindrances and hurdles that threaten to derail us. And this is one of the wonderful blessings about the Bible. From beginning to end, God has proved that no matter what his people will face, there is nothing outside of his control. He created all things and always brings things together according to his perfect will. This is what Paul says in Colossians 1.17. All things were created through him, and in him all things hold together. There is no mission that he cannot accomplish with perfect achievement and execution, even if that mission is to conquer death itself. And so because of that, if you'd like to read with me from Isaiah chapter 53, which we will be today, we're going to look at three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6 in Isaiah 53, and they say this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The prophet Isaiah, writing nearly 700 years before Christ would be born in Bethlehem, prophesied that he would be born of a virgin, that he would teach and lead his people, and eventually that he would suffer and die. However, all of this, just like Isaiah says in this text, was perfectly according to the plan of God in eternity past. His mission to his people to perfectly atone for their sins by his own blood. And so in a world that we consistently need reminding that things are out of our control, let's be encouraged that by looking at this text, we can see that God is always 
perfectly in control, especially concerning our salvation. So if you take notes, the purpose of the text we'll be looking at today is that Isaiah 53, 4-6, explains the suffering servant's successful atonement so that we will recognize him as the sufficient Savior. Isaiah 53, 4-6 explains the suffering servant's successful atonement so that we will recognize him as the sufficient Savior. We're going to look at each of these four verses, verse 4, 5, and 6, but starting in verse 4, the first indication of this successful mission is that he succeeds despite our rejection. He succeeds despite our rejection. Verse 4 again says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah begins with a brief summary statement about how the Messiah will atone for us, that he will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. That term, our griefs, is a general understanding of sickliness, or another way would be chronic illness. It is the impurity and the uncleanliness of a human fallen condition that impedes unholy people to stand before a holy God. And it pairs perfectly with the next term, our sorrows, the pain and suffering usually equated with wounds. It explains the consequences of a fallen human condition, not only the fallen human condition itself. It's the reminders constantly that life is not as it should be. That pain and death will eventually come. However, this prophecy states that the Messiah will deal with both of these issues. Concerning our griefs, he will bear them. He will load them up. He will carry them upon his own shoulders. And in concerns with our sorrows, he has carried them as well. Even those pains and miseries related to our salvation are dealt with. And the worries we have about our eternal stance before God is carried away. And so even in the first two lines of verse 4, we have a sort of microcosm of salvation, clear and concise, and explaining, in a summary, what salvation will look like. However, something interesting happens in this prophecy in which Isaiah immediately moves to how the recipients of this salvation will respond. Specifically in the context of Isaiah 53, he is speaking to the Jewish people. How will they look upon this Messiah who has saved them in this fashion? And it is a startling response. He says that though he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The point is that though this mission should have been recognized by all of his people, he wouldn't be accepted by all of them. That term esteem, it's how we consider something to be something, our evaluation, our justifiable assumption of what something should be considered to be. The idea is that when they added up the data concerning the future Messiah, and they compared it to the data that they assumed the Messiah should be, They chose their estimation 
rather than the biblical revelation. The Old Testament specifically always uses this term as an intellectual act that begins in the heart and eventually comes out of the tongue. And therefore, this prophecy is not only including the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people, but the consequential act that we see on the cross when they verbally abuse him and they verbally reject him as he dies. The Messiah that they built up in their heads was a better estimation of the Messiah than what God himself said about the Messiah. And it perfectly fulfills the verse just before verse 4 in verse 3 when it says he was despised and rejected by men and that he was despised and we esteemed him not. However, before we think too much about the Jewish people specifically, let's consider ourselves and the fact that we all make wrong expectations in some way in our lives. We've all had a higher understanding of how a person should be or act than we initially intended. We've all been on vacations that weren't as great as our wildest imaginations about them. When I was personally thinking through this, I was thinking of when I started seminary, I used to go to what are called advanced movie screenings. Four or three months or so before a movie comes out when it's not completely finished, they'll invite people and pay them usually a movie ticket or a couple bucks to come and evaluate their movie. And I, as someone who really likes movies, decided I wanted to do this. And so it helped me get through seminary. Going to these random movies, they would give me small pieces of data about what the movie was supposed to be about, what it included, and I would go and literally judge the movie for them. However, I so often left frustrated because even in the small pieces of data that they gave me, my imagination went wild. And I assumed the best possible expectation of that movie I could think of and was so often disappointed. Now, if they want my judgment, shouldn't that seem fair? Shouldn't my evaluation mean something to them? In one sense, yes, but at the same time, it's very unfair to judge them based on my wildest expectations of what I think it should be. And in a similar sense, this was the response of the Jewish people. That Christ was rejected because of their unfair expectations on the way he should behave and the way he should redeem them. Specifically through them, for them, through a physical restoration of kingship against a Roman Empire, rather than the real problem that they and us are all faced with, which is, how do I deal with a holy God that I owe everything to and I bear his image in such an unholy lifestyle? And the response of such a gracious act instead of acceptance was rejection. That he would be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And you can recognize the violence enclosed in these terms. Specifically, concerning that word, by God, by God. And the understanding is that as Christ laid on the cross, they assumed that that punishment was deserved of him. That they would look on him and they would say, God is doing this to you because you are a blasphemer and you declared yourself to be king over us. He was truly despised and rejected by men, assuming that he deserved everything that was happening to him in that moment. 
And it seems strange to us. Not only that understanding, people being saved, people understanding what Christ really did. It would be like watching a news report that says a man donates his organs for cancer research, but he's a bad guy. It doesn't seem to, to fit the data. And the question in the first place is, why does Isaiah add this specifically in his prophecy of a dying Messiah? Why include the rejection of the people? And there's at least two things that we can consider when we look at this. One initial reason is because it demonstrates that as Christ is dying on the cross, he's also atoning for the rejection in their hearts. Isaiah is very straightforward with us that it is not just the Jewish people, but all people in our fallen human condition. Our most, our most natural status is to reject the Messiah. This is the blindness of sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, and they are folly to him. For he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is the problem with sin in all of our hearts. Romans 6.12 says that sin makes us obey our passions, that we want other things instead of Christ. 1 Peter 1.14 says that sin makes us ignorant, that we refuse to accept the things of Christ because we want things for ourselves. Even Christ said in John chapter 8, verse 34, that anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Paul picks up this exact same logic when he says in Romans 3.10 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means that all of us demonstrate our slavery to sin when we work out actions from hearts that long for ourselves and our way rather than Christ's way. And therefore, as Christ himself is dying on the cross, he says in Luke 23.34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The stubbornness of the human heart cannot understand the most gracious and personal act in the world by our own means. Therefore, this is a reason that the rejection of the Messiah is included in this prophecy because even our rejection cannot be a hindrance to the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. He would need to simply provide a way that we would recognize what this sacrifice is. And he did that by the power of the Holy Spirit. After his death and resurrection, he promised that a helper would come and progress our Christian walk to a full understanding of who Christ is and what he would do. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 again. In verse 10, he says, these things have been revealed to us by the Spirit. In verse 14, he says, we have received not a spirit of the world, but the Spirit from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And he sums up this whole thing in verse 16 when he says, as a consequence of the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. Therefore, we can say, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-19, that though the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so, 
Isaiah's prophecy includes rejection so that we would understand the transformation necessary to understand what this prophecy is talking about. Why the Messiah died. And the second is also very straightforward. Why else is the rejection of the Messiah included in his death? And the reason is because it demonstrates Christ loved sinners while we were sinners. Christ loved sinners while we were sinners. Many of you probably have Romans 5, 6 to 8 memorized. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Consider for a moment if that grips your heart. If we can even begin to understand as unworthy people before a holy God how someone could love us so deeply while we reject him so abruptly. Consider Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. As he was preaching about the glories of the Messiah and explaining that though it was the divine will of God to crush Christ, he was sent there by his own people. And there may have been many people there who only a couple weeks earlier had literally been there rebuking and verbally abusing Christ as he died for them. And as a response of the stirring of their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and the solid preaching of the word, 3,000 people exclaimed, what must we do as they understood whose sins Christ died for? When we recognize the love of Christ on the cross, even that recognition is part of the atonement that God purchased for us through the Holy Spirit. And what is included in that illumination is the understanding of how unworthy we are of God's love, yet the depth of that love nonetheless. And therefore, in this way, verse 4 explains to us that Christ succeeds perfectly in his mission despite our rejection. And therefore, as we leave verse 4, we look at verse 5. Now that he's explained a possible hindrance to the gospel proved completely conquerable by God's divine power, how is he going to explain what he has actually done? And verse 5 explains that. Verse 5 is that he succeeds in accomplishing our atonement. He succeeds in accomplishing our atonement. Verse 5 again says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The kinds of verbs that Isaiah uses here highlight the specific elements of how this atonement is going to be achieved. And of those four lines, they can be broken into two separate parts of at least two elements of how this atonement is going to be accomplished. And the first is that it must be violently executed. It must be violently executed. He uses two verbs here. He uses the term pierced. You can picture a spear going into a human body, but it's actually deeper than that. It's specifically to be struck fatally, to result in death. And the term in the Hebrew is actually intensified, so it's even greater than we would initially assume it to be. And that second term is crushed. 
If you wince when you think of the term crush, then you understand it correctly. It's the same term that kings use, speaking about their response to enemies of the state, oppressors, and people who disobey their lordship over a land. That they will crush them. And just like Pierce, that word is intensified even more than crush would already understand. And this fits the rest of the section perfectly, considering Isaiah 52, verse 14, verse 13, beginning this entire summary of this prophecy, says that he will be attacked so viciously that many will not even see him as a human being. His face will be so marred. And just two verses after our section in Isaiah 53, 7, he says that he will be a lamb led to the slaughter. And so the question naturally is, why is violence included in this particular prophecy? Why include such heavy graphic language? Is it simply an unpacking, of again, of the love for the Savior for us? Does a physically suffering Messiah need to be part of the gospel? And in one part, even a lot of unbelievers understand this. The popular movie that many of you have heard of, The Passion of the Christ, has led many people to understand the vicious brutality of Christ on the cross. And on one hand, that's a good thing in terms of it is true that Christ suffered miserably physically. However, people understand that partially right, but for wrong reasons. And the real reason is because if sin is a severe offense, then the punishment must be a severe penance. This is why verse 5 is such an amazing reversal of verse 4. Because the Jewish estimation that Christ would be smitten, stricken by God, and afflicted is true. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ by God. But the problem was it was not a deserved punishment. It was not for himself. Notice that all four lines in this verse include the first person plural pronoun. Our, our, us, we. The stress here is that everything Christ did was on the behalf of other people. That the suffering that we should have received for the atonement of our own sins was put out on him and he suffered the highest possible cost because of the height that sin needed to be dealt with. That he would suffer excruciating torment to reveal to us the punishment that God requires of sin and that in its death that Christ may take that penalty and complete it for us. And even more than this, it is not just the suffering and the depth of any person as we might assume that we could simply give penance to God by our own suffering. But it needs to specifically be the suffering of an innocent and perfect sacrifice. Leviticus and Deuteronomy explain the context for innocence in a sacrifice. That the people must lift up the best possible sacrifice to God to demonstrate his worthiness by having a pure and unblemished lamb or goat to demonstrate God's need for perfect purity. And especially in the minor prophets, explain in depth 
the serious abuse of the people of God towards God in offering the worst sacrifices, demonstrating that they do not think God is worthy of the best. And therefore, Christ himself was the best in that he never sinned. And therefore, can take that punishment that guilty sinners could never accomplish because we sin. But even more than that, he wasn't just innocent, but he was perfect. He always did what was right. He fit all the accomplishments that he explained in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.48 when he said, you must be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Peter understand this as well in 1 Peter 2.22 when he said, he committed no sin, neither was sin found in his mouth. And the amazing thing about Peter explaining that in particular is because he is meditating on Isaiah 53, specifically verse 9, when he says he made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. See, this violence is happening to an innocent, perfect Christ to demonstrate the plan of God for all of Christ's life and death to be planned and perfectly executed for sinners. That his suffering and, and his suffering and death were exactly what was planned by God. Both of these requirements are often called in doctrinal terms as imputation. That all of the sin that we deserved was put on Christ and punished completely that we would be made right with God. And this is perfectly summed up in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we would become the righteousness of God. Nothing needed to be done by Christ for himself, because he was already perfectly restored to the Father, but stepped down, to intercede on our behalf. And this is the second half of verse 5 where he says, it must procure peace with God. He must take our sins so that we would be restored to right relationship with the Father. He must take our chastisement. That is a discipline that leads to healing, which is exactly what the next section of the verse says where he says, by his wounds we are healed. By the punishment that he received on the cross, we could stand before God without being punished. And that through his brokenness, our brokenness would be turned into healing. And as a result, it would bring us peace, corrected fellowship, a community restored into right relationship. The term you might be familiar with is reconciliation in the same sense of the prodigal son, unworthy of receiving his father's love, only to see his father rush out of the house and come to embrace him and reconcile him back to the family. This is what Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 5.18, where he says, Through Christ, God reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. At the highest cost possible, the death and suffering of Christ was completely atoned for so that we may boldly approach the throne of God, sanctified and pure in his sight, completely 
set free. And this is the explanation of verse 4 and verse 5 of Isaiah 53. That despite our initial rejection, Christ would be successful in revealing his glory to us, that we would understand the depth of his love for us, and then he would explain that it would be perfectly executed through his own suffering and execution and therefore procure peace with God. And therefore, the only other thing he needs to do is simply bring the message home. And he explains that finally in verse 6. In verse 6, he explains that he succeeds in redeeming an entire community. He succeeds in redeeming an entire community. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah wraps up his explanation by widening the lens to explain all of the beneficiaries of salvation, encompassing the full assembly of believers, of those who he would illuminate the gospel to and respond in faith to him. He says all, everybody, the whole. The focus is on getting everybody onto the same page. And the way he does that is metaphorically saying that we are all like sheep. Now, in an ancient Near Eastern context, for them, there would be a ton of things coming up considering they knew sheep very well. And fortunately, that plays for us very well considering if they know a ton about sheep and we know very little about sheep, in both cases, there needs to be some sense of specification. How are we like sheep? And he immediately explains that. Sheep go astray. They wander. They vainly go about. The reason that sheep had a constant watch of shepherds is because they were always pining for other pastures. Not better pastures, just other pastures. Sheep aren't content to stay put. And the question is, when Isaiah says that, does he simply mean that we're lost? The popular phrase of this generation is, not all who wander are lost. Does that mean I've actually done something wrong? Or I'm simply taking my time to find my way to Christ? Now, you could say that if there wasn't further explanation, but there's at least three things to briefly consider why it means an outright rebellion. The first is that this term is also used elsewhere in the Bible to speak of a drunk person. And the reason that's important is because in relating to someone who's drank too much, you can see the sense of responsibility attached with this term. That they put themselves in a position where they cannot reach out or act responsibly. The second is what we already talked about in verse 4. That due to our sinful state, we naturally reject God and must be revealed to us what exactly he has done. And to add even more to this, the third thing he immediately says is that we go to our own way, our own road, our own path. That the God who created the world and created all good paths for us to walk on and find full satisfaction in him are constantly rejected for roads that we design for ourselves and decide are better than his. That we forsake the divine counsel and wisdom of God by taking up our own sinful counsel. And there's no exclusion in this. He says this is the case for every single one of us. Everyone, literally every man, every human being, the most generic turn for humanity. 
every single one. And so again, the question is, why does he go from talking about the Jewish people specifically, then to the broader people of God, and then to everyone? Why widen the lens so greatly in explaining the atonement? And the reason is very simple. Firstly, all is the ultimate reminder to share the gospel to fellow transgressors. The beauty and sufficiency of Christ is only truly understood in evangelism. When you meet that person, especially in our current context, who has absolutely no hope, who is so beat down by their own circumstances and so destroyed by their own ineptness and having no understanding of what life is all about to begin with, And they say, could Christ have really died for me? You can truly say, without a hint of hypocrisy, all the sin that ever needed to be punished was already punished on Christ. Even yours. And so the sufficiency of Christ and the widening of his lens to all people is a reminder that we should tell the gospel to all people. It is not reserved for our congregation And it doesn't stop at the end of the church walls. It is for those people who do not not yet know Christ. And the second is for us that all of our fellowship is based upon now a sinner once saved. Many things bring us together as a group. And many things allow us to be friends with others. Similar interests, similar desires, similar plans, similar testimonies. And those are all wonderful things but they don't create the kind of heart-to-heart community that I was a sinner once saved does. They don't get the same depth of fellowship when you can consider somebody not a friend, but a family member adopted into Christ's very family through the death of Messiah. That your fellowship was planned from eternity past and it would be purely redeemed for his preeminence. And he cared about that fellowship because he he cared about your conversion because every single conversion came at a cost. Every conversion came at the highest cost. Romans 3, 23 to 25 says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. His perfect life and sufficient death were the means for us to have excitement in sharing this wonderful news with others and to enjoy the fellowship that he has brought us into together. And therefore, as we consider the mission of Christ, remember that Not a single part of it was accidental. Not a single part of it was unplanned. It wasn't a response to his conditions getting the better of him. No, this was a divine Trinitarian act for you to demonstrate the glory Christ is owed and the love and joy we can have with him. He perfectly without any grasp or loss of his control, saved you 
for the benefit of community and the benefit of declaring his glory to the nations. So for anyone who does not know Christ, if you see his glory and understand that you truly don't deserve his love, then know that Christ has already died for all of the sin you will ever commit. It was completed just as he said it would. And for those of us who know Christ, let us remember and be encouraged that despite the chaos that seems to happen in the world, nothing is outside of the scope of God, which he definitively proved when he conquered death itself. And that your salvation was perfectly accomplished through him so that we would not struggle with the fear of death, especially now. God himself laid all of the iniquities upon him. God himself laid all of the iniquities upon him, and it has made all the difference. And so we are called to know him and treasure him forever and live in security that our eternal resting place and the purpose of our lives to praise him forever is already a real and perfect reality. So let's pray. Thank you, God, for this time and just the opportunity to open your word and be edified by it, be provoked by it, and to be encouraged by the fact that we have no need to worry. That just as you provide for the birds of the air, you provide for us. And you have especially provided in the atonement of all of our sins and the need for perfect righteousness. That means we walk obediently from a thankful heart with no near reason to fear the future. Thank you for this fellowship that you've provided for us and the blessing it is to walk through this life empowered by your Holy Spirit and edified by other believers. Let us always be gracious. Let us always be encouraging. And let us enjoy all of the benefits that you have given us that we may walk in your light. Thank you for this time and we pray all this in your name. Amen.